Our text this morning is Romans chapter 9, verse 4. Let's read the context again from verses 1 through 5 and then ask the Lord for his help. I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, of whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Amen. Father, Again, we would ask this morning that you would be gracious to us, your people, and meet with us and open your word to us that we might understand it, illuminate it to our hearts, Father, by your Spirit, that we may see you and glory in our God, that we might know you as Creator and especially as Savior. Lord, we want your glory to be foremost in this church, and so we ask that you would help us to that end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we have been um, in the same verse for some weeks now, and that has been intentional. Um, <laughs> this is a portion of Scripture that is uh, rich with terms and meaning that I think is important to understand. And so my heart and endeavor over the last couple of weeks has been to unpack the significance of the covenants the covenants, when we read that word or those words, we want to have a good understanding of what is being referred to there and not just pass over it in a, a cursory way. Paul is bearing his heart, just by way of context in this passage. He is um, grieving exceedingly for his brethren after the flesh. These are the Jews, his countrymen, those who are his brothers uh, by birth. And he's grieving because of their unbelief. He's grieving because in spite of the many privileges that they have been given by the Lord, they still are ignorant of God. Despite all their advantages, they don't know the Lord. And so Paul is finding himself in the position of continually praying for his brethren. As we've been looking at this third privilege of the covenants, this is one of the great privileges that the Lord has given to Israel, uh, not just as an ethnic nation, but to the true Israel of God, as I hope you are uh, seeing as we go through this material week after week, these privileges, these promises are to God's true people. Um, and so for them, they are received, they are acknowledged, they are rejoiced in, and I trust that you are rejoicing uh, more and more as you see what the Lord has done for you, as I am seeing what he has done for me. What we've talked about with regard to the covenants is that these are not just like ordinary contracts that people have between people. The covenants in the scripture are agreements that are between unequals, between a greater and a lesser, between the Lord who is the sovereign, the suzerain, and between those who are his servants, his subjects, the vassals. And what we've seen is that even though Paul uses the word covenants in the plural, <clears throat> 
And there are many such covenants that have been identified by theologians in the Scriptures. Really, there is one great eternal covenant that we understand the Bible teaches, and that is called an everlasting covenant. Everlasting because it was established before anything was created. It was established in eternity when the only person or persons were God. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so this covenant began in God. It was determined by God, independent of the work of his creation to come. And it was then acted out and executed by the obedience of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the mediator between God and men. And after that was applied to all his people in terms of sequence of thought. There is a planning of the redemption of uh, the covenant of redemption. There is an execution of that covenant by the Son of God. And then there is an application of the work that he has done for each of us in the church's history throughout space and time. This is this covenant or the covenants that Paul is referring to here. And we saw a couple of weeks ago that this covenant is disclosed in embryonic form as early as the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. After an initial agreement with Adam, a a statement that you must uh, eat of the freely of the trees of the garden, but not of one tree in particular, because in the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. That was the condition of obedience that God gave to man. And man was measured by God based on his performance. Man sinned, as we know, and fell into sin, fell into death, fell into uh, uh, no relationship with God at all. He was separated from God. But God in his mercy discloses this, the beginning of this eternal covenant of grace. That there will be a seed that comes from the woman, from Eve, who will crush the head of the serpent. Who will crush the head of the seed of this serpent. He is the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, who will crush the devil himself. This is the cosmic battle that the Lord establishes for us or brings us to understand something of even as early as the Garden of Eden. And then we trace the covenant through and we see the elements of covenant at different times in redemptive history with Noah and with all creation after God flooded the earth and destroyed everyone because of the continual evil of their hearts. And the covenant promise to Noah is that he would never flood the earth again. He would never destroy all living things again as he had in that flood. And he gave the sign of the rainbow to show this is a period of grace. God is creating a a time, a period in which he will redeem humanity. And then we move to the covenant with Abram. And we saw that God promised a land, a seed, and a blessing. And that all of that was really centered in and around God himself. Abram, do not be afraid. I am your shield and I am your exceedingly great reward. The true inheritance God disclosed to Abram is God himself. And he taught Abram that in you, in your seed specifically, which is a reference to Jesus Christ who is to come, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. 
And that blessing will come by faith, whereupon the righteousness of God will be revealed, communicated, given to each one who believes God in the same way that Abraham did. He took God at his word. It was credited to him as righteousness. And that, brothers and sisters, is how anyone has ever been saved. Through faith, belief of God. Then we moved to Sinai, and we saw that at Sinai, God revealed more of himself. He revealed his holiness, his holy character, in disclosing his law. And he revealed the eternal covenant to them there. And then to David later on in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we saw this last time, that God promised through David that there would be a dynasty, that he would have that the family of David would be the source of Messiah. It would be a royal son who comes from David, and his reign would not be like David's or Solomon's or Rehoboam's or anyone else in the line of David, but it would be an eternal reign. It would be an eternal kingdom because he is Messiah, and he will come through the line of David. And then we looked just briefly at the new covenant last week. And we saw that the new covenant is really just another label for the same covenant of grace. But it deals with the work of God in the Messiah in space and time. Jesus Christ. And that's why this new covenant is also referred to as the Messianic covenant or sometimes as the Christian covenant. We were looking primarily at Jeremiah chapter 31. And Jeremiah 31, verse 31 reads, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. And so we see that this was a covenant that God indeed made a covenant with Israel at Sinai. But that was not the eternal covenant of God. He had presented the elements of the eternal covenant, but the covenant that he entered into at Sinai with the people who said, we will do all the words of this law, was a bilateral agreement based on their conditional obedience. It was a an agreement that the people entered into in their own strength and without having the new heart that God must supply. And because of that, it was a covenant of works. And God says, I will make a covenant not like that covenant, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And that last phrase is really the central motif of the covenant of grace, of the entire thing. It's summed up in those words, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Underline that. Remember that because that's important. That's what we see again and again as we read about the covenants. What is it that God is describing when he says, I will be their God and they will be my people? He is describing his loyalty to his people and his people's loyalty to him. We first got um, 
some semblance of this in Genesis chapter 17, verse 7. God speaking to Abraham, he said, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. And then again at Sinai on the mountain in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. Now therefore, if you, speaking to the nation of Israel, will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. What is he describing? He is simply saying, you will be my people provided that you obey my covenant. And then here in Jeremiah 31, again, I will be their God and they shall be my people. That sounds more promising than if you obey. And it is indeed. How is it that God will accomplish this great promise of being loyal to us and we ultimately to him? Well, his instruction in this portion of Scripture regarding the New Covenant, Jeremiah 31, is this. He will put his law in our minds and write it in our hearts. He will put his law in the most intimate place we have, in the place of our deepest desire and caring and love, in, not just in our minds where it may toss around for a while or, or something that we can point to in our thinking for a time, but ultimately we have no love for it, but in the heart where we will desire it, where we will seek it, where we will delight in the word. And he will accomplish this promise of loyalty by disclosing himself to each of us in a personal saving relationship when he forgives our sins. He says in verse 34, No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For, here's the reason, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And really, brothers and sisters, it's that last promise, <clears throat> that last promise in Jeremiah 31 which makes this the messianic covenant. This is the reason why this relates to Jesus. The only reason God will forgive the sins of his people is because he must send his son to be the sin bearer for his people. Do we know that there is no forgiveness, no grace from our Lord apart from his righteousness and his justice being satisfied? God does not show grace to sinners when their sin is not dealt with. If he did, if he simply forgave us our sin but never dealt with our sin, he would be rightly accused as being an unjust judge. But he is not an unjust judge. So he in his infinite wisdom has sent his son to deal with our sin, to suffer for our sin and die for it, which is the prescribed penalty in the law for sin. It's death. So Christ had to satisfy that perfectly for us in order that God would be both just and the justifier of him who trusts in Jesus. He is just and he is merciful to us in Christ. That's why this is messianic. That's why he forgives us our sins. It's all because of Jesus and his work for us.
You know what else is remarkable about this passage, and um, it really struck me, and I shared it with you last time, is these promises are to the house of Israel. But these promises are applied to the New Testament church in Hebrews chapter 8. These are not just promises for the nation of Israel. What we are learning is that this covenant, God's great covenant, is for his true people. It is for those who don't necessarily call themselves his people by name, but for those who exhibit the covenant of grace within themselves. Those who have his law actually written in their hearts. Those who love his law. Those who know the Lord in a saving way because they know that he has forgiven their sins personally. That is the true house of Israel as far as Scripture is concerned. They are the recipients indeed of this covenant of grace. Today, I want to continue looking at the new covenant with you and seek to really open it up a little bit further um, because this covenant is truly glorious. And that's why I titled the message simply, The Glory of the New Covenant. I want us to see more of the glory of this covenant um, and there's, there's many places that we could go in the scripture to do this exercise. This is a, a, a big exercise. We're not going to be able to capture all of it today, obviously. But I just want to give you a sampling of, of a few of the most prominent texts in scripture in the Old Testament that um, really give a flavor for this. And then I'm going to give you some other passages to take home so you can study it yourself. Take a look with me um, at Jeremiah chapter 32. So just a page over from where we are in Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 32. And let's start together in verse 36. Remember, Jeremiah is the prophet of the Lord to uh, Judah, the southern uh, kingdom of Israel. And uh, he's prophesying for 40 years during the last five kings, the reigns of the last five kings of Judah, just before Israel is, before Judah is exiled, sent out of their land to Babylon. And so Jeremiah is um, going to bring a message of impending doom, which he's uh, not popular for. Uh, they hate him for. They actually put him in a cistern and leave him there to die. But he also preaches a message of great hope, a message of restoration. And that's what we're going to read. That's this covenant here, covenant language in Jeremiah 32 and verse 36. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say it shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. This city is a reference to Jerusalem. Behold, I will gather them out of all countries where I have driven them in my anger, in my fury, and in great wrath, and I will bring them back to this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely. And so for context, the first question that you might be asking yourself is, why anger? Why such fury and wrath from the Lord? Well, back up in the same chapter to verse 21. Here's the summary of what God has done Jeremiah 32, verse 21. You have brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, and with great terror. You have given them this land of which you swore to their fathers to give them. 
a land flowing with milk and honey. And they came in and took possession of it, but they have not obeyed your voice or walked in your law. They have done nothing of all that you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have caused all this calamity to come upon them. Does that strike you as amazing, this indictment of God's people? That they not only haven't obeyed the voice of the Lord, but his word is, you have done nothing of all that I commanded you to do. That is startling because most would think, Israel was trying to keep the law of God. They maybe missed on a few points. They weren't perfect, but they certainly weren't pagans like the rest of the nations. But God actually here from his perspective is saying, you've done nothing in terms of obeying me. You've missed all of it. Why? Because none of it was done in faith. None of it was done with a new heart. And the scripture teaches that anything that is not of faith is sin. That's not to say that um, it's not just if you don't muster up faith in a particular moment toward God that he credits that as sin, but that when he looks upon a person who doesn't have a heart that believes, he's in a state of perpetual unbelief. All God sees of your life is rejected by him. He abhors all of it. He hates it. All of it is refused by him. He sees it as ugly and as rebellious. Look at verse 29. And the Chaldeans who fight against this city shall come and set fire to the city and burn it with the houses on whose roofs they have offered incense to Baal and poured out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger Because the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done only evil before me from their youth. For the children of Israel have provoked me only to anger with the work of their hands, says the Lord. For the city has been to me a, and this is inserted for clarity, a provocation of my anger and my fury from the day that they built it, even to this day, so I will remove it from before my face because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah, which they have done to provoke me to anger, they, their kings, their princes, their priests, their prophets, the men of Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And, verse 33, they have turned to me the back and not the face though I taught them, rising up early and teaching them, yet they have not listened to receive instruction. Is it any wonder why the Lord is angry and furious with his people? They've completely turned their backs to him from his perspective. They've done nothing of what he's commanded. And so he, all he sees is a pattern of evil that comes from them. And do you see how many times he uses the word provoke? You provoked me, provoked me, provoked me to anger. And so God is going to deliver them out of this land into the land of the Babylonians for 70 years as a punishment, as a stern punishment. Why is it that they didn't listen? He had the prophets coming to them again and again, rising up early and speaking the word of God to them. Why didn't they heed the word of the prophets? It's not that they didn't have the knowledge. 
Well, earlier in Jeremiah's letter in chapter 6, verse 10, he said this, To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Indeed, their ear is uncircumcised, and they cannot give heed. Behold, the word of the Lord is a reproach to them. That means an object of scorn. They hate it. They have no delight in it. So why is it that the people couldn't hear the word of the Lord through the prophets? Well, God's answer is because their ear was uncircumcised. It's not that they didn't hear, but they couldn't hear. They had no ability to hear. And when they heard it, all they heard was a reproach to them. They hated it. They may have given lip service to the word of God and to the prophets, but in their hearts, they had completely turned the back to the Lord. And so he delivered them in his anger. Now, look at verse 37 again. Behold, I will gather them out of all countries where I have driven them in my anger. Here's the good news. Here's the glory of God's grace. Beyond this captivity and all the fury of his judgment, he has a message of hope. Behold, I will gather them out of all countries where I have driven them in my anger. So what do we learn first about this covenant? And I say covenant because if you read the very next verse, this is the linking verse that tells us this is the covenant of grace. They shall be my people and I will be their God. There's the central motif again. So God is explaining something more. He's revealing something more about his covenant here in Jeremiah 32. He first says that this covenant involves a return to the Lord from the nations where he himself drove them. And you might think, well, that's just circumstantial. He, he judged them and, and he did so by driving them out into exile. But brothers and sisters, this is not circumstantial. This is part of the eternal covenant that he's describing. Their circumstance happens to be circumstantial to them, in a sense. But this is part of the eternal covenant. This is a key feature of the covenant that transcends circumstances and is true for God's people in all times. The real covenant deals with God bringing his people back from a state of exile. This is a covenant, in other words, only with those who have been exiled from the presence of the Lord. And you might say, well, when did that happen for all mankind? We can see when it happened here for Israel. When did it happen for all of us? Well, that happened in the garden. After Adam and Eve disobeyed and God drove the man and the woman out of the garden, and he set cherubim, angels, at the east end of the garden with a flaming sword which turned every which way. Why? Preventing access back into the presence of, Lord, of the Lord and preventing them from partaking of the tree of life so that they would live forever in that condition of disobedience and sin. That's when all of us were exiled from the presence of the Lord and ever since that point, the whole story of the Bible is that man has been a sojourner, a wanderer, an exile, seeking his own way and his own pleasure apart from the life of God, which is, of course, an exercise in futility. You remember that the uh, parable of the prodigal son, in that parable, it was the younger brother who took a journey into a far country, right? 
The older brother never took the journey into the far country. But the older brother certainly took that journey in his heart because he was very much distanced from the father just as the younger was. They both were. One had physically taken the trip, the other one stayed with his father. But it was the younger, and it was only the younger, who was made aware that he had turned his back on the father when he was in that far country, destitute of all resources and hungry, and he came to himself. He had a realization. He woke up. That was repentance. And he realized that he was in the slop with the pigs and that he just needed to get back to his father. The older, on the other hand, was always with the father in person, physically, though he was distanced from him a million miles in his heart. So you cannot be brought back to the Lord until you first know that you've been driven out. That's the point. Those who know that they've been driven out and are truly sorry for it are those whom the Lord brings back. He says in verse 37, I will bring them back to this place and I will cause them to dwell safely. They shall be my people and I will be their God. And look at verse 39. Then I will give them one heart and one way. Now, this is new revelation that Jeremiah is giving us in chapter 32 here on this covenant. He had told us in chapter 31 that he would write his law on the hearts of his people. But the new revelation here is that the heart that God writes his law on is not our heart. It's actually his heart. It's from him. He will give his people, as he calls it, one heart. That means singleness of heart. That means a heart that is not divided in terms of loyalty. A heart that is loyal to God, just as David was known for having a heart that was loyal to God. This is the heart that he gives to all his people in this great covenant of grace. It's actually the very heart of God himself. It's a heart that is united to his own heart. A heart that loves what he loves and that hates what he hates. It is a heart that aligns our affections with his affections. The heart in the scripture in the Old Testament is a a description of what's called the seat of the affections. It's a description of the inner man, the inner person. It, It talks about what you love, what you think about, your thought life, what you care about, your emotions, and what you desire to do and not do. It's your will. That's the heart. It's all subsumed under that term. And what we know is that before the Lord gives this one new heart, the natural mind of a man is enmity against God. It's literally hostile and hatred toward God. It's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. It's not able. It's an uncircumcised ear. It cannot hear. It has no ability. It's hardened. But when God gives the new heart, he gives along with it new desires, and new delights in the law of God. Remember, we heard this testimony from Paul in Romans chapter 7. I delight after the law of God according to the inward man, even though he was wrestling so much with his own flesh. This is how David in Psalm 19 could say about the judgments of God, more to be, more to be desired are they than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. 
How is it that anyone comes to see the law of God as a delight, as sweet? He has to be given this one new heart. This is really describing new birth. This is describing regeneration, a change of nature from within that God alone can affect. He doesn't stop there, though. He says, one heart and one way. That is, one path, one direction, one manner of life. And what is that? Well, it's God's way. It's a way of righteousness, a way of holiness. Would you notice that the one heart comes before the one way? You cannot walk in God's way until you have his heart. That's there intentionally. And why is it that the Lord must give us his way? (laughs) How many people in this world are trusting in their own way, are seeking their own way, who, who believe that there's many ways up the mountain, so to speak, to get to God? Man, in his sheer pride, his hubris, thinks that his way is the right way. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end of that way is death. It's not the right way. He's self-deceived. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6, the Lord says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And lest you think that that's an innocent turning away, like a a sheep who just veers off the path and um, really meant to stay on the path, but just didn't for that moment, we need to also temper that with the rest of Scripture, which In Psalm 14, for example, verse 3, the Lord says, They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. And when you read the very beginning of that chapter, you learn what the source of that corruption is. It's this. It's the, the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. And that's not a statement of ignorance, as in, just tell me about God and I'll believe in him. That's a statement of defiance. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want his knowledge. I'm going to turn my back to him and go my own way. And the result of that is, I'm seeking my own way. And so the Lord in his grace, in his mercy, he gives us his way. He sets us on the one path that leads to life instead of every other path that leads to death. Yes, the Christian faith is exclusive. There is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ and Him alone. And if you think there is, you're on another path that leads to death. Now, think about what the Lord Jesus said when He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He himself is the way of God. He is the the only way to God. And he is the very way of God himself. So what does he give us in this new covenant according to Jeremiah 32? Well, he gives us his heart and his way. He gives us his desires to love his own word and to obey him. And he gives us his own son, his way who dwells in our hearts by the Holy Spirit to empower us to walk in his way, which is just another way of saying to enable us to live a holy life, to walk in righteousness. 
See, the new covenant doesn't ever just pardon sinners and leave them in their unclean state to continue pursuing their own way. He gives us a, a new nature, a new heart, and then he sets us in his path that we would stay in it. Look at the purpose that the Lord identifies for this one heart and one way here in um, Uh, Verse 39, then I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. Now, when we hear about the fear of the Lord in Scripture, um, it often sounds like a bad thing, doesn't it? Or at least at first blush, it sounds like a, a bad thing. This is not referring to a craven fear of the Lord. A fear of him as a holy judge who is just waiting to pour out his wrath upon me and destroy me. That's not what the fear of the Lord is referring to. It's referring to, well, in this context, he says the fear of the Lord here is, notice this, for the good of them and their children after them. It's for the good of them. If someone were to ask you, what is the greatest good that a human can ever experience. The greatest good a human can ever experience in this life, what would you say? I can tell you what the Lord would say because he says it right here. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the greatest good that a human can ever experience. Listen to how the fear of the Lord is described in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Proverbs 16, verse 6, By the fear of the Lord one departs from evil. Proverbs 14, verse 27, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty good to me. right? Turn away from death, turn away from evil, and to lead us in the path of life. Arthur Pink called the fear of the Lord, quote, the divine antidote against indwelling sin. The greatest antidote that we have to indwelling sin and not yielding to it anymore is the fear of the Lord, is to see his glory, to stand, actually rather bow in reverence before him, the holy God. The fear of the Lord is the greatest good because it will lead us and our children to eternal life, brothers and sisters. That's what makes it the greatest good. It leads us to the Lord. Not necessarily our biological children. That's not what that teaches. That's our prayer. That's our prayer. We're all praying for our children that the Lord would have mercy on them. But what's required is that God would give them this one new heart and set them in his way. And notice this, unlike Israel's fear at Sinai, the fear of the Lord is not a temporary fear. He says says, um, that they may fear me forever. Forever. That they would not stop fearing me. See, the children of Israel at Sinai, they had a kind of a fear of the Lord. It was a temporary fear. They saw the phenomena of the the, the, sign, the, the lightning bolts, the, the thunder, the flashing lights, the, the great smoke and the fire, they were terrified by the sight of God coming down on the mountain. And that fear was with them for a time. But what happened? When they turned away and they went their own way, they quickly forgot the fear of the Lord. 
It didn't stay in their hearts. And they pursued their own way. No, this covenant teaches that they may fear me forever. And what does this perpetual fear of the Lord do in his people? What does it do? Look at verse 40. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. You notice he's talking about the everlasting covenant, so this is the same covenant that we see throughout Scripture. What's so interesting here is when he says, but I will put my fear in their hearts, he uses the imperfect tense in the Hebrew, and imperfect just means not completed. It means continual action. Continual action. So what he's actually saying here is, and I will continually put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. Brothers and sisters, this is how the Lord does good for his people and how he does it continually. He keeps on putting his own fear in our hearts that we would depart from evil and stay close to him. Walk in his way. This is the same central motif of the covenant. I will be their God and they will be my people. How does he do that? Number one, by bringing us back from exile to himself. Number two, because he gives us a new heart and a new way. New desires, new affections for him and for righteousness. And an ability to walk in his way because we have that new heart. And then he pledges himself, thirdly, to us that he will never leave us again. But there's two parties here, aren't there? There's two parties. I will be their God and they will be my people. So how does he guarantee the second part? What if we walk away from him? How does he deal with that in this covenant of grace? You know, it's, there's a concern from some in the church that um, it's possible for us to lose our salvation. They believe that you can walk away from the Lord and just depart from him. They don't affirm what we call the doctrine of the perseverance or the preservation of the saints. That God will, God who saves his people, saves them completely. He will hold them to the end. He will not allow them to fall away. He will not allow anyone to pluck them out of his hand. This issue comes up at this point because it's true that if we were left to ourselves, we would walk away from the Lord. We would depart from him in a moment. We'd go back to the old way. We'd be like the dog that returns to his vomit and the sow that returns to her pig pen, right, to the mud. Because our nature wouldn't have changed. So we would do what we love. Pigs love the slop. Dogs, Um, (laughs) Look at Israel wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They were at Sinai. They saw the, the, something of the Lord, his glory. The fear of the Lord was put in their hearts in a sense. But then in the wilderness, they were killed. All of them in that first generation except for Joshua and Caleb. Why? Because they had hard hearts of unbelief. Hard hearts. And then again, in the generation following Joshua, they knew not the Lord. And throughout that whole period of the judges, they did what was right in their own eyes. And then what we read in verse 23 of this chapter in Jeremiah 32, uh, they did nothing of all that God commanded them to do and they turned their back to the Lord. See the problem? From the head to the toe, 
we are totally sinful in the sight of God in our natural condition. Isaiah chapter 1 describes it like an open, festering wound. Disgusting. That's what he sees when he looks at the sinner. Not somebody who just needs a little bit of reform or uh, to be taught some new um, morals, some new lessons so that they walk in a new way. No, no. They have to be transformed completely. They have to be reborn. Their current state is not acceptable to God. Even their best works, Isaiah says, are like filthy racks. He doesn't accept them. God only accepts the work of God, not the work of any man. So the Lord must do something to guarantee that we don't walk away from him. And what does he do? Well, he continually puts his fear in our hearts so that we will never depart from him. That's new revelation in this great covenant of grace. He puts his fear in our hearts continually so that we won't want to leave him. We may veer and wander a bit, but ultimately we will never depart from him. That's what he's promising here. That's why we believe so strongly in the perseverance of the saints. It's the message of the whole scripture. It's not just this passage. And that's not to say that we have no part in our endurance. That's also important to say. There are people who would just emphasize the the work of God and the grace of God and not talk about the responsibility that man has. That would be an unfair, unbalanced approach in Scripture. God exalts his sovereignty and he also exalts the responsibility of man. Both are required in the Scripture. Let me give you an example. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. So are we required to hold our confidence, our faith in him to the end in order to be saved? Yes. Hebrews 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Is that something that we do? Yes, it is. But can I share the rest of that verse with you? For he who promised is faithful. If you are able to hold your confession of faith to the end and persevere and trust the Lord through all the trials and tribulations that he will bring you in this life, it is because he is faithful to you. And he is faithful to his own, to all his own. You see, without the second part, it's like saying, drive the car, but there's no gas in the tank. (laughs) And some of you are saying, no problem, I've got my electric vehicle. Well, for those of you who have an EV, there's no batteries in the compartment either. (laughs) Try driving. A brother this morning was telling me about that. You've got to stay charged. (laughs) See, this is the truth of Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, where the Lord says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who who is at work in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. There is a responsibility that we have. Stay near the Lord. Walk in his way. Love him. But the undergirding truth that makes that possible, the gas that's in our tank is, I'm faithful to you. I'm faithful to you. I will put my fear in your hearts continually so that you will never depart from me. That's exactly how God guarantees this central motif. I will be their God and they shall be my people. He's guaranteeing it by himself, his own work. That's not divorced from our work, but it's our work enabled by his work. I hope you see that. 
The Lord always supplies what he requires in his people. That's a central truth in Scripture that we need to remember. He requires what is impossible of you and me. Impossible. You cannot do it in yourself. But by his strength, he can supply and does supply every need so that you can walk in his way and that you will be saved. He guarantees it unilaterally. Doesn't that remind us of the ceremony that he showed to Abram when he put him to sleep? And then he himself, God, walked between the dismembered animals as that burning torch. I'm guaranteeing the covenant by myself, Abram. You are just going to be a recipient of my grace. And you will walk in my way. You will do what I command of you because I myself will enable you. Notice in verse 41, Jeremiah 32, 41. It says, yes, I will rejoice over them to do them good, and I will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. So what does that tell us? It tells us that the Lord will not take his people back reluctantly. When he brings them back from exile, exile to sin and death, the true exile, he will rejoice over them. He rejoices over his lost sheep when they're found, doesn't he? Do you remember the story again of the The prodigal son, when he came to himself, the younger brother came to himself, and he began to go back to his father. It was the father who saw him from a great way off, a great distance. And the father lifted his robe and ran to the son, which would have been a shame for him in that culture. But he did it, and he was willingly enduring that shame for love for us. Because he loves his children. You know, R.C. Sproul, we did a lesson recently where he recounted uh, being a young man and got in trouble with his mom, came back to his house, found mom there with her arms crossed and tapping her foot, just kind of waiting to do one of those I told you so's or let's hear, let's hear this. You know that you did wrong. And he said, you know, um, our God is not like that. He's not like that. For the son who comes back, who repents, he welcomes us with open arms. He rejoices over us. He showers us with blessing. And he puts our sin behind us so that he never brings it up again. Verses 42 to 44 really speak of God's promise to return his people from captivity to the physical land. And and that's what he did after 70 years. He brought Israel back um, in measure. There was a remnant that came back. They, They were not the same nation that they were when he sent them out. But he was faithful to his few, to his remnant. And so what we see here is Jeremiah 31 tells us that God promises to be our God and we his people because he will write his law in our hearts. He'll give us a personal intimate knowledge of him as Lord, the one who forgives our sins. Jeremiah 32 opens it up a little bit more and, and he shows us that God will gather us in from the exile, draw us close to himself, give us a new nature via this new heart, this one heart. And a new way, a holy way of life to walk in a way that's pleasing to him. And then he himself guarantees that we will persevere and not depart from him because he will continually put his fear in our hearts. This is the glory of the covenant of grace. It's just unfolding. There's another great passage that I want to give you to read at home in the very next chapter. It's Jeremiah 33 Verses 6 through 25, I would encourage you, spend time with that. Go through it with a fine-tooth comb. Jeremiah 33, 6 through 25, you will be blessed. 
I want to transition to Ezekiel and show you another prophecy from Ezekiel. Um, Ezekiel chapter 11. Jeremiah, of course, preached um, up to the time when Judah was exiled. Ezekiel is um, born in Judah. He, is, he lives there until he's 25 years old. And then he is taken captive with the second wave of the captives that are taken to Babylon. They, they go out in three waves. And Ezekiel is in captivity in Babylon for five years when he receives his call. He is a priest from his birth, but he receives a call as a prophet of God when he's 30 years old. And his message is partially, just like Jeremiah's, there's judgment yet to come for Jerusalem, which hasn't fallen. They will fall in the third wave, which happens in 586 B.C. But after that fall and the 70 years in Babylon, there also is a message of restoration from Ezekiel to these people who are in exile and who feel like God has given up on them. Look, uh, I just want to share a couple of passages here with you in Ezekiel chapter 11. Look at verse 14. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, your brethren, your relatives, your countrymen, and all the house of Israel in its entirety are those about whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Get far away from the Lord. This land has been given to us as a possession. These are those in <clears throat> Jerusalem who are behind. They've not yet been exiled and they, they think that it's still their land to possess. Verse 16, therefore say, thus says the Lord God, although I have cast them far off among the Gentiles, that is just the nations of the world, or in this case Babylon, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet I shall be a little sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. God is here pledging to be a little sanctuary. Uh, that means a, a small place, little not ostentatious, not big. And sanctuary is the word for holy place. Holy place. This is a reference to the tabernacle and to the temple where God dwelt in the holy place, actually the holy of holies. In the wilderness, God taught his people. God taught his people that his dwelling place was among them in the tabernacle, right? Specifically, over the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. That's where he met with his people. It was location specific. Later when they built the temple, his, God's presence was with them. He filled the temple with his Shekinah glory in the same place, geo-specific, location specific, over the Ark. But here, now that they're in exile, the Lord is pledging that he will bring his sanctuary to them in the countries where they've been scattered. That's a sea change. That's a shift. See, in the new covenant, his sanctuary, his dwelling place, Ezekiel is teaching, is not a location-specific place. He is transitioning from a physical location to all the places where his people are. This is certainly new revelation. And how will he do that? Will, will he command thousands of temples, or millions rather, of temples to be built in every land so that his people can be with him wherever they are? Or does he have something else in mind that is, that is targeted to his people but is not location dependent? In Ezekiel 37 coming up, verse 26, he's going to say, I will set my sanctuary in their midst 
forever among them, within them. Look at verse 17. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples, assemble you from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. That's extremely significant. I will give you the land of Israel. Remember back to the covenant with David. He didn't say, I'm going to give them the land of Israel then. He just said, I'm going to appoint a place for my people. But they had already been brought into the land. and The the promise of the land was fulfilled even in Joshua's day, Joshua 21. We looked at that. But here, God says, I'm going to give them the land of Israel. So the question is, if it wasn't the physical land where they already were at the time of David, it was a point yet to be, a place yet to be appointed. And here he says, when they're in exile, I'm going to give them the land of Israel. Where is this Israel? We get a clue as we keep reading here. Verse 18, and they will go there, that is, God's people will go to the land of Israel, and they will take away all its detestable things and all its abominations from there. Those are words that describe idols. Idols. God hates idols. They're detestable to him. Then I will give them one heart. We read that in Jeremiah 32. And here's something else new. I will put a new spirit within them. I will put a new spirit within them and take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. He will put a new spirit within them. That that is a reference to the new birth to regeneration. It was implied in Jeremiah's prophecy with uh, one heart, this new nature. But here he says it explicitly in Ezekiel. I'll put a new spirit with him. That's the new creation, the new man. I'm going to make him new internally. And he says, I will take out the stony heart of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Here's new revelation as well. If the Lord gives one heart in one way, as he talks about in Jeremiah 32, But he never takes out, removes the old rock heart. Then which of the two will be governing the person? Will it be the stony heart or will it be the new heart? But here he says that he will remove the hard heart. He will take that out. That that heart which is unresponsive to God, which is opposed to him, which is stubborn, which is like a sclerosis. We talk about arteriosclerosis, heart disease or vascular disease. What is that? That's a filling up of the arteries with plaque. They're hardened so that blood cannot flow through them. And if you get that uh, where you have a complete blockage, you have a real problem. It's life-threatening. Well, the heart is like that. It's, the old heart is hard. It has no real life flowing through it. And God says, I have to take that out of your chest. I have to do a heart surgery and give you a a new heart. A heart that is unblocked, that is willing to yield, that is willing to obey the Lord, that loves the Word of God. The uh, other way that this concept of the removal of the heart is described, removal of the stony heart, is brokenness. Brokenness. That's a word that means shattered, completely broken. God will take the hammer of his word and smash that hard heart in order to remove it from us. And the the tense that he uses when he talks about, I will give them a new heart and I will take out the heart of stone, is not just a one-time action. It's, again, the imperfect tense. So it is, I will continually give them a new heart and I will continually take out that old heart. 
What is he saying? You will be governed and controlled more and more by the new heart and less and less by the old heart. He's talking about nature. Yes, we still have some vestige of that old heart. It's described in Romans 7 as that old man that hangs to us. That he's strapped. He's attached to us. He vexes us. He annoys us. He tempts us and we don't like it, but he does. But he's not controlling us anymore. He's not dominating us anymore. He's not sitting in the seat of authority anymore. But the new heart is. That's his heart, God's heart. He's governing us. And more and more as we grow in grace. And look at the reason he says he does this. Why is he taking out this old heart and giving us a new heart that's pliable, that responds to him? Verse 20, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. He's describing a new practice of your life. That you would actually obey the Lord as the practice of your life. That's what a walk is. That you would keep his judgments. That means watch them carefully, observe them, and then actually do them. And that's something only the children of God can do empowered by this new heart. See, here's the covenant motif again. They will be my people and I will be their God. Jeremiah 32 says he guarantees it by putting his fear continually in our hearts so that we never depart from him. Ezekiel 11 here is saying he removes the hard heart. He gives us a new heart which is tender so that we will not only stay near him but actively walk in his way. Do you see what he's saying? I'm empowering you to actually obey me. And then coming back to verse 21, he says this, But as for those whose hearts follow the desire for their detestable things and their abominations, I will recompense their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord God. That's very insightful. Insightful about the location of these detestable things. What did he say previously about these? Well, what does he say here about these detestable things? He says they're in the heart. They're in the heart. In verses 17 and 18, he said, those detestable things are in the land, quote-unquote. So what is this land? Brothers and sisters, I would submit to you that this land that he's speaking of here is the new heart that he brings us to. The new heart that he puts in us. This is God's own heart. This is the heart of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the heart that we've been given because we've been planted with him. We're in union with him. Right? Back to Romans 6, 7, and 8. This is where he dwells. This is the little sanctuary where he dwells with his people. His worship center is in the hearts of all his people. If you think I'm way uh, out in like right field or left field, I guess is the expression, for this, just consider the parable of the sower. Remember the parable of the sower what does the good ground represent in that parable? The heart. The land, the good ground, represents the heart. The seed represents the word which goes into the heart, the ground. That's not accidental. That's exactly the connection that the Lord is making in the Old Testament with his people here. When God takes out the stony heart, what is he doing? He's tilling up the stony soil of our hearts and preparing it to be good soil. So that his word would go in, take deep root, and bear fruit for the glory of God. Um, we're out of time. Seems to be the theme lately with the covenants. Um, Ezekiel, 
um, 34. I just want to give you some things to read at home. I think you will be blessed. Ezekiel 34, verses 23 to 26. And then Ezekiel 36. This was our um, corporate reading this morning. Ezekiel 36, verses 16 to 38. Just a couple of highlights I want to tell you about from Ezekiel 36, and then I'll close. God discloses more of this glorious covenant, the new covenant. He gives us the motivation for why he brings his people back from captivity. And he says, it's not for your glory, but it's for my glory that I'm doing this, for my name's sake. Um, And he says, here's what I'm going to do to sanctify my name, to make great my name. I'm going to hallow myself in you, my people. In other words, everything we've just been learning and reading about with regard to the inner work that God does in the person, in the heart, that's how he's going to make himself look great in the eyes of the watching world. He's going to transform your life so that you, know, you don't look like the old you anymore, but you are going to start to resemble Jesus Christ more and more. And as you do that, that will give a testimony to the world that will bring great praise and glory to our God. That's the glory of this covenant. He's hallowing his name in his people. What a great work the Lord is doing in us. He also talks about sprinkling us clean with clean water, cleansing us from our filth and our idols. Again, where are those idols? They're in the heart. He's going to give us a desire that we would tear down those idols from our hearts. All those things that dishonor him, tear them all down. And he's going to enable you to do that by his grace. He will give us the new heart. And then he reaffirms this in Exodus, or Ezekiel 36, which is so wonderful. He says, I will put my spirit within you. Not just I will give you a new spirit, but I'm going to put my spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, within you. Why? To cause you to walk in my statutes and judgments so that you do them. So previously, the revelation was, I'm going to make this heart change within you so that you may walk in my way. Here he says, I'm going to cause you to walk in my way because my spirit is going to be the gas that drives your car. You see? This is the glory of the covenant. Brothers and sisters, this is what makes the new covenant new and what makes the old covenant old. What makes it new is God's work in us. What makes the old covenant old is our work, which is useless. It's an abomination to him, and it only results in death. But God's work and his work in you leads you to life. That's why it's new. It's not new to him. It's the eternal covenant, but it's new to us because it's, it's a new message. It's, you can't do anything to save yourself, but I can do all to save you and preserve you. Is our God glorious? Are you rejoicing in him this morning as you hear these truths? I certainly have been as I am studying them. Um, I also wanted to read Luke 1. I'm not going to at this point, but read Luke 1, 67 to 75. That was our, our call to worship. And see this fulfillment of the covenant in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ who comes to perform the mercy promised to the fathers. He's the one who performs the mercy. What's the mercy? I'm going to save you. You will be blessed of all the people of the earth because I myself will work in you in all that's required to bring you to myself so that you will live with me and rejoice with me forever. Let that be our vision in this week to come. Dwell on that, brothers and sisters. When you're in your trials, when you're in hardship, 
Come back to these truths. Let them saturate your mind and heart. And God's peace will flood you. That's his promise. Let's pray. Father, your word is life. Your word is rich. It's sweet to the taste as we experience it, Lord, more and more. We are rejoicing in you this morning. And, and Father, we thank you that um, it is your spirit who really makes all the difference in the world. It's God in us working actively within us so that we would live in your new way and not in the old way. Father, thank you that um, you've given us your word and, and you've illuminated it. You, you've brought it to life really for us, Lord, and that's, that's what requires the power of your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, help us to give due honor and praise to the Holy Spirit of God. May he never be minimized in his ministry. May we magnify the Trinity equally, Father, Son, and Spirit. You, Father, for all of your planning of the great work of redemption. You, the Son, for your faithful execution, perfect obedience to the Father and your heart of willingness to do this for us undeserving sinners. And you, Holy Spirit, to apply this great work of redemption to our hearts so that we would um, evidence your covenant in the way that we live. That we would know you as Lord and Savior, that we would rejoice in your great name. Father, glorify your name in us. That's the desire of our hearts in this church. And we know in the hearts of every gospel-preaching church. Father, do a work in us for your sake, and may we rejoice in you all our days. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.